Well, good evening and welcome to the University of Texas at Austin. My name is Greg Fenvis. I'm the Executive Vice President Provost here. And on behalf of our great university and especially the Macomb School of Business and the Robert S. Strauss Center, it is wonderful to see you all on campus, even on this rainy evening in Austin. Uh, the University of Texas is a university of the first class. And one of our features and one of my passions is our commitment to innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, this runs through our city. Austin, as you all know, is a hotbed of innovation and high-tech development. And it has been for more than 30 years, and it continues to grow along with our university. As just the latest example, just down the street, the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas is leading innovations in medicine as it works within the university and the Austin community and nationally to dramatically improve the health of Austin and improve clinical practice and healthcare delivery through innovation. All of which makes our campus the perfect setting for tonight's inaugural event in an exciting initiative by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute has earned a global reputation for sparking thoughtful debate and discussion on the most important issues facing us today. And it is in that spirit the Institute is launching Aspen across America, beginning right here with the one and only Walter Isaacson and the world famous Michael Dell. To tell you more, I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Eric Motley, the Vice President of the Aspen Institute and the Executive Director of Aspen Across America. Thank you. Eric. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Provost. <laughs> I'll get it right. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Provost. Thank you on behalf of the Aspen Institute to the whole of University of Texas, to the Strauss Center, to the Macomb School of Business. We're very, very excited to be here. And none of this could have really, really happened without a number of individuals who are great friends of ours here in Austin that I feel compelled to acknowledge. One is Dr. Alex Dale, who is a great supporter of the Aspen Institute, and the name might suggest that there is some relation. Uh, Clay Johnson, who chaired a very important commission at the Aspen Institute that was focused on reforming the federal appointments process. And um, Professor Robert Chesney, who has been kind of my partner in helping to create this evening and has brought all of these many parts together to make this what I know will be a very successful inaugural event for the Aspen Institute. And when the idea was inspired, I phoned one individual by the name of Jim Langdon, who's at Aiken Gump and who's very much connected to the University of Texas here at Austin. And Jim is a can-do person and said, this will happen. There are two individuals you need to speak to. And by the end of the day, I was speaking to Robert and someone else. And so Jim and Sandy, we're very grateful for your support for this evening. The Aspen Institute was founded a little over 60 years ago with the intent of bringing people together to re-examine the timeless values and principles that inform our way of thinking about the critical issues that we face in society today. And 63 years later, we're still known for our power of convening thought leaders, politicians, academicians, and citizens to look at finding viable solutions to those complex problems. About eight months ago, we started to conceive of this idea called Aspen Across America. And we thought, 
we're doing a really great job of convening people. Why not take this on the road across America? And so I'm very proud to say that this is our inaugural stop. This is our first stop on this Great American Road Tour. The Winnebago is outside. <laughs> I was in Dallas a couple of nights ago and someone asked me, why Austin? And, and you know, I thought, wow, you know, Dallas people. Uh, and there were four reasons that I came up with. One, this was on my feet, very quick, off the cuff. Well, we wanted to begin at the beginning of the alphabet. And Alaska was a little too remote. So Austin, we wanted a great partner at an institution that was committed to scholarship and serious research. And we wanted one of the most exciting cities in America to be our first stop a city that reflected creativity and innovation and the spirit of human potential. And then we decided we wanted to showcase a feather, rather extraordinary individual to be in dialogue with our own CEO, Walter Isaacson. And it just so happens that Michael Dell lives here in Austin. At the age of 19, when he was a student here at the University of Austin, University of Texas here at Austin, he became somewhat distracted with the great captivating idea and at age of 19, with $1,000 probably given to him by his father, Dr. Dell, he pursued that idea. And that idea became one of the most transformative engines of innovation, Dell Computers. Michael Dell needs no introduction, nor does Walter Isaacson, the CEO of the Aspen Institute, who I think is one of the great public intellectuals of our generation, and certainly one of the great biographers. And the conversation tonight is very appropriate for Austin, for all of you, and for these two individuals who will engage us in a very thought-provoking discussion on entrepreneurship, creativity, and innovation in the future of technology. Walter and Michael, we're very happy to have you in this series, this inaugural series. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. I'll tell you the real reason we're in Austin. There is no city that connects the arts and technology better, that connects creativity to entrepreneurship better. I love Austin and have a particular affection for it because after the hurricane, my parents moved here for six months because my uh, brother had gone to the University of Texas and you took in a lot of people after the storm. I also have a deep affection for Alex Dell and um, Susan, thank you for being here. And I wanted to start, because I'm an uh, aspiring biographer, I wanted to start, uh, and you may be the subject, you know, if I do the next volume, I wanted to start even before you were 19. You were an investor here in Austin when you were in school, right? I was um, uh, here as a biology major, freshman biology major, and... But I'm talking about even in high school and before. Didn't you sort of start businesses, sell Houston Post? Oh, that, that was back in Houston. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, I, w I was doing all kinds of businesses uh, from, from, uh, from a pretty young age. And what got you interested in computers? I was in um, a, uh, in, in my junior high school, mm -hmm. in, in the math class, we had this uh, kind of advanced math class, they called it. And, and uh, I was lucky enough that my junior high school, uh, part of the Houston Independent School District, you know, the mm -hmm. public school system, got a teletype terminal. Mm -hmm. And on this teletype terminal, we could type in programs 
and you know, the answer would come back. And I, this, I was just, just unbelievably fascinated by this. So I would you know, stay after school and you know, type in these programs. And then I started learning about the microprocessor. You know, it was this thing called Byte Magazine. Right. And, and, and Intel uh, was, had just come out with the 8088. Intel had come out with the 8088. Uh, there was a Radio Shack store cool. in between my, my school and my house. So, you know, when, when Don't I Don't tell me you started with a trash 80. No, I didn't. <laughs> okay. But, but uh, you could, you know, it, it was on the, the riding my bike back and forth, right? And, and uh, so, uh, you know, got really enthralled with that uh, when I was uh, about 14 or 15, uh, saved up enough money uh, and bought an Apple II. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about personal computers at that time is you could, you could take them apart and uh, you know, all the parts were made by other companies, mm -hmm. and you could understand exactly how the whole thing worked. So you had a soldering iron and used to jack into things? like. Oh, a, yeah. We were, we were hacking away and, and uh, kind of figuring out how the thing worked and how to upgrade it. And Do you think we lose something now? The Apple II was, you know, Wozniak famously insisted you'd be able to open it up, jack in. Of course, the next uh, series, Macintosh and all, were sealed appliances. Do you think kids lose something now that they don't know what a circuit board looks like? I think kids that want to know that, it's pretty easy to know. Okay. I mean, there are all sorts of Arduino and all sorts of you know, ways for kids who want to get into that to, to you know, uh, build their own uh, computers and learn about integrated circuits. They are much more of a black box today, right, where right. You, you know, integrated enormous numbers of you know, uh, transistors into a, a very, very small number of, of chips. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how, how, how I got started. And then you came to the University of Texas. You were saying you did biology at first? I was a biology major, and I was, uh, you know, uh, kind of had this thing on the side where I was upgrading computers and, and actually go back a little bit, in 1981, uh, IBM introduced the personal computer, and, and I was 16 years old, and it occurred to me that that was a, that was a big deal, right? And, and that, um, you know, with an affordable personal computer that people could use in, in business, that this was going to be you know, a very exciting thing. Small businesses could buy them. Any business could afford them, and that just kind of uh, it really interested me. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of had this uh, side activity while I was supposed to be going to school uh, of upgrading these machines and, and uh, um, you know, it, it, it got in the way of my studies a bit. Um, That's why you went to <laughs> University of Texas? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no. <laughs> Although I will say, you know, w when you go to a really large university, one of the advantages is if you don't show up for class, nobody really knows, right? So, you know, Big uh, advantage, yeah. And, and um, so, yeah, there might have been a time or two I didn't quite show up. But, mm -hmm. but um, anyway, um, uh, around November, uh, actually Thanksgiving of uh, 1983, my parents uh, had sort of uh, gotten the sense that I was really focusing more on this computer business stuff than going to school. And so they, they you know, came up uh, somewhat of a surprise visit, gave me a very stern lecture, you got to get your priorities straight, you know, all that kind of stuff we tell our kids. Uh, 
And uh, is that true? <laughs> this is all uh, very, very true. Uh, we got I, another eyewitness here, mm -hmm. and um, um, and I I uh, I committed to my parents that I was going to stop doing that and focus on my studies. And that lasted for about 10 days. Uh, I really, really tried hard, you know, I, but I just, it just, but what, what's interesting is during that 10 days, that's actually when I decided it wasn't a hobby or a fun thing. It was actually something I was very passionate about and wanted to do much, much more. So if they hadn't made me stop, you know, I m might never have created the company. Mm -hmm. And so you, when so, did you, you dropped out to do the company? Well, I, I finished my, my freshman year. I incorporated the company about a week before finals. Which yeah. not, not the best idea, but that's what happened, you know? Stuff happened. So, yeah, right. so, 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 uh, so I, I uh, kind of relocated the business from my, my dorm room in, <laughs> into a, a little bit more proper office. And you know the business grew. Uh, in the first nine months, it was six million dollars, and the next year it was thirty-three million dollars. It grew about eighty percent per year, compounded for eight years. And then for the six years after that, it grew compounded sixty uh, percent. And if you're pretty good at math, you know that's you're into tens of billions of dollars right. at that point. And so. it was because of a real disruptive technology and idea that you could sell. I mean, this is where the internet meets the personal computer. Yeah, it, it, was, it was certainly the time of the enormous growth in the, in the personal computer. But what uh, uh, I observed was that the way the machines were being sold was rather inefficient. Mm -hmm. It took way too long for the technology to get to the user, and the cost was... Uh, quite high. And so you know, when, when we introduced uh, uh, our 286-based our machine, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it was twice the performance of IBM's, and it was half the price. And so we didn't have any problem selling a lot of them. Right. You know, and and uh, you know, the business grew very quickly. So it was not just a new marketing chain, meaning direct to consumers. It was also building better products. It, it, it was it was more direct to customer, yeah. Because uh, actually, most of our customers were were, were, yeah. were businesses, and it, we certainly mm. sold to consumers too. Mm. Uh, but it, it was it was a new business model, um, and and uh, and you know also a, a, a new way to engage with customers. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to do a little quiz here about people I've written about. What do you have in common with Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Bill Gates? Uh, I could go on. All of you drop out of college. This is why I never get asked to give graduation speeches. <laughs> but um, was being rebellious and willing to take that big leap uh, an important you know, part of what made you who you are? You know, it actually didn't seem like a big risk uh, because... Did it seem like a know, big risk to you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> because, you know, the University of Texas, if you, if you leave for a semester, you can come right back. Yeah, and so yeah. we kind of came to an understanding, my, my parents and I, that uh, I, would, I would sort of take the business into a, into a different phase. And if it worked, I'd keep doing it. And so far, so good. <laughs> so, and if it, if it didn't, I'd, I'd so you, know, you may go have back. to go back to the University of may Texas at to, some point. Yeah, study yeah. biology and yeah. that's right. 
Well, yeah, as you know, they Susan and Michael did the med school that will open in 2016. So there's a spot for you there, I guess, if you need it. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, My parents always wanted me to go to medical school. <laughs> Are they still disappointed you didn't become a doctor? Yeah, I think a little still? bit. A yeah. little bit, yeah. Uh, so you become, at age 27, if I'm right, the youngest CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Um, tell me what that was like, sort of being a whole generation different from the people you were competing against. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, you know the, the good news is that I wasn't the first young person in the technology sector. Right. And there yeah. were others that I could look to, right, that had done, uh, you know, things like that. And, and um, um, you know, we, we, we were just focused on growing our business and, you know, the, the, the kind of all-consuming, all-occupying activity were the opportunities in front of us, which were enormous and actually continue to be enormous as we think about expanding into, you know, new services, software, uh, helping our customers actually solve big problems, not just the, the you know, supplying the, the technology itself, expanding around the world, mm -hmm. you know, tons of opportunity. And you took it privately when to, what, how was it? We uh, completed the, the privatization uh, end of October of last year. Oh, wow. uh, company was public for mm -hmm. 25 years. And how liberating has that been? It's, it's been great. It, it really has allowed us to uh, think about the business in a different way, think about it more in a three-year, five-year, ten-year horizon, um, to take on some risks that are harder to take on in a, in a public company. Uh, it's uh, allowed us to uh, go after some investments that we've wanted to go after, and we've been able to accelerate our growth rate. We're gaining share. All of our businesses are doing well. Uh, lots of progress. And, you know, the interesting thing, if you, if you think about uh, public companies today, they're, uh, you know, uh, shareholders have a pretty big voice. That's not altogether bad. It's just that all the shareholders don't agree. You've got some and is there a particular problem with activist shareholders who think they can run your business better than you can? Not for me anymore. Yeah, I'm, yeah, all, right. done with, I'm, I'm all done with those guys. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, certainly for some other companies, that, that's, a, that's a real issue. You know, I, think, I think, look, anything taken to an extreme can be a problem. And I think, uh, you know, if you think about activism investing as a strategy to show up at a company, buy a small percentage, agitate for some particular thing during a you know, given period of time, the thing occurs, they leave, they go to the next one. Does the accumulation of a series of short-term oriented uh, activities result in the best long-term outcome? I don't think so. In, in, in fact, I think- Give me an example. Well, I think, um, you know, I think in this country we have examples in education. I think we have it in politics. I think we have it in business. But I meant from Dell when it was public, what type of things can you do now where you couldn't do it when you had to have a more short-term instead of long-term perspective? Sure. So we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in projects that will lower our earnings in the current period or periods, but we believe our great businesses uh, you know, a year, two, three years from now. And so we've added, you know, thousands of salespeople. We've, uh, you know, uh, in, invested in cloud and analytics and 
you know, building out new software businesses, new services businesses. Uh, healthcare IT is a rapidly growing sector. We've got a great business there. We're kind of doubling down on that business. Cybersecurity, uh, we've got some fantastic businesses. And if, if you think about, uh, you know, what public companies deal with, uh, it's this uh, kind of uh, pressure from, from short-term shareholders, give us a bigger dividend, buy back the stock, uh, you know, uh, merge with this, spin this out. Um, sometimes they might actually be right, but, but uh, uh, when you get a kind of perfect alignment of the customer, the strategy, uh, what the company wants to do, just makes it a whole lot easier. But you've talked about a 90-day shot clock, uh, meaning you really do have to keep that short-term focus when you have a publicly traded company. Explain what that is, that concept. Yeah, so public companies uh, you know, have, have uh, this, this uh, reporting period. Every 90 days, they report their, their revenues or earnings, a bunch of other things. And there's this thing called guidance, right? And the, the guidance, interestingly enough, it would imply that it's something that the company has offered about its future prospects. It's not always the case. Sometimes companies don't say anything, and the guidance is given to them. You know, as if uh, you know the 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 outside world knows what the company should should do. Yeah, maybe it does, but you know, sometimes it, it doesn't. So. The problem with that, of course, is that the, the managers in the company become very fixated on achieving this short-term oriented, right? So let's say you're running a business and there's an opportunity that requires investment. It requires investment now, but, but the, the, the results or the rewards don't come for another year or two. Well, if you're so focused on achieving that guidance, you may never even hear about the opportunity you know, much less have a decision to, to but decide. But then how does somebody like Jeff Bezos hold that at bay? I mean, can you do it running a public company? Well, it's a good question. I think, you know, uh, for most of their history, he's, he's shown an ability to do that. Now, he did something very unique at the beginning when he went public. He published this famous letter, you know, right. 1997, where he explained exactly what he was going to do. Now, there, you know, some would argue that it's fraying around the edges and some of the shareholders aren't happy, whatever. You know that's that's sort of uh, stock that, price is not doing as well, but yeah, that, that, that's 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 something he'll he'll have to deal with, mm -hmm. um, and th there probably are other potential solutions. Like you know, in some companies, uh, uh, you know, the the founder or founders have extraordinary levels of control over the voting of of, of mm -hmm. uh, you know the shares that that uh, right. provides. You know, some, some measure of that, right? Yeah. You mentioned a few moments ago you ticked off the things you're able to get into as being entrepreneurial and innovative because you're private. Let's go through some of them and tell us about how, you know, where you think they're going. I think the one you mentioned was medical analytics. Yeah, so, um, you know, the healthcare IT sector uh, is very interesting. If you look at the economy, you know, healthcare is consuming a larger and larger portion of the economy, yet IT has not played the transformative role in healthcare that it has in other sectors. And you know, we're working with you know, hundreds of thousands of doctors, thousands of hospitals to build health information systems, uh, evidence-based medicine systems, affiliated physician systems, 
medical imaging systems to be able to use data to be able to you know, improve patient outcomes. Then why is it outcomes. so hard for people like me to get electronic medical records out of my doctor's <laughs> office? Probably a better question for your, for your doctor, but <laughs> there, there, are, there are you know, all sorts of, of barriers and reasons why it's been more difficult. Uh, it's starting to happen more and more, and there are you know, starting to be more and more standards and interoperability. There are certainly privacy issues and, and concerns. Mm -hmm. Uh, even some of the doctors don't want to adopt the systems because they allow for a very broad analysis of activities and, and outcomes, which may not be to the liking of, of the, the doctors. Getting back to the medical analytics you're doing, how would that be translated, say, into cancer care or to you know, types of diseases like that? So here we're doing a couple of things. I mean, we, we have, uh, you know, our whole industry has an enormous amount of computing power that is being made available at ever-decreasing cost. There's an incredible deflation in the cost of enormous amounts of computing power. So if you think about uh, disease states like cancer and you're looking at uh, you know, a particular genomic uh, uh, you know, sequence, being able to create a targeted therapy uh, for a very, very specific type of cancer as opposed to uh, a broad brush, you know, kind of carpet bombing type treatment. Uh, we, we, we've done a lot of work there. So TGen, the Translational Genomics Institute, uh, we've created, you know, high performance computing power for them, addressing conditions like neuroblastoma, which is a, you know, deadly childhood uh, cancer, uh, and being able to, in a very, very short period of time, create a therapy for a very uh, given, you know, for, for a given patient that would have taken 10x or uh, 100x the time uh, given, given the prior technique and wouldn't have been as, as targeted. Now, if you think about the, the Moore's Law and all the great advances that are happening in the, in the molecular ingredients that go into computing, all of this is rapidly getting put into uh, you know, systems that are going to be, you know, available widespread. Another example would be medical imaging. We have about 8 billion medical images uh, that we store for customers of all different types, you know, MRIs, X-rays, CT scans. And we're, you know, certainly looking at how do we use that information and assist the, the, the physician seeing that, that information to say, hey, there's an 80% chance that this is probably one of these, or, or it's a 20% chance it's one of those, you ought to run this test or that test or ask this question. Uh, so how do you aid the physician with the enormous amount of data that's, that's out there? Uh, I was in Houston yesterday in Boston, I think the day before, and both cities say that the next wave of the digital revolution will be the merger of the life sciences, healthcare technology, you know, with information technology, and that it'll help places like Houston, Austin, Boston, places with great medical centers, and almost migrated away from the engineering of, say, Silicon Valley. Do you see that as the next wave of the digital revolution? I think, I think it's certainly an enormous opportunity, the biological uh, you know, sciences combined with the computational sciences. I don't think it's the only one, by the way, right? You know, uh, if you think about computing power, its cost is just coming down at a, at a, at a tremendous rate. And so you know, for a few pennies, you can put silicon in, 
any number of devices, machines, gadgets, uh, you know, and, and physical objects. And so you go from having, let's say, a billion connected devices to 100 billion or a trillion. Now you're creating enormous amounts of data. That data can be used to create better outcomes, better results, uh, you know, improved uh, productivity, you know, efficiency. And again, you step back and you look at the world's unsolved problems, whether they be in energy, the environment, medicine. Uh, as we get more computational power, I think we go and address those problems at a faster rate. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a very exciting time. Sometimes I think the shorthand for part of what you described is the internet of everything, right? Where you know every sure. device is sending data to places. What, what would, give me an example of what Dell could do uh, to analyze that data or do something with it to be transformative or innovative? Well, you know, we, we see our customers embracing this at a pretty rapid rate. So you think about, um, you know, one of our customers, Emerson. Mm -hmm. And Emerson has been in the business of, uh, you know, creating systems to control uh, you know, manufacturing plants and refineries for a long, long time. Well, now what they're doing is they're putting little pieces of silicon across this entire network and they're improving the productivity and efficiency of water treatment and everything else that goes on in that factory, getting higher yields, higher output, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, we have, you know, uh, a lot of customers in retail. Well, you know, a retail store is sort of an experiment in, where do you put things? What color do you, you know, uh, place them? Uh, you know, where, where do you stack them on the shelves? Uh, how do you price them? You know, well, tons of data, actually. And, and so retailers are actively working to figure out, okay, how do we use this very low cost availability of computing to make our stores more productive? Hmm. In, in the education realm, you know, we're working to, uh, you know, effectively create uh, data systems. So here in Texas, we have the uh, Texas Student Data System. Our family foundation created a standard called EdFi, which is used in about 30 states to be able to measure you know, educational outcomes. So the, the broad theme here, we call it the data economy, right? And, and if I think about where does the next trillion dollars of growth for our industry come from and for our customers, this unleashes all sorts of productivity and, and, and better outcomes across all, all sectors. Yeah, you've mentioned two sectors, medicine and education, especially K through 12 education, that you would think would have been the most disrupted by the technology revolution and the data revolution, if you want to call it that. And they have been the least so. Why is, uh, let's say K through 12 education, what you do with your foundation and you do with your company, why why are things, I mean, Ben Franklin invented a schoolroom for the academy in Philadelphia, and it was 24 desks in a row with a blackboard in front, and he'd say, yeah, if he walked into a classroom now, that's just what uh, we had. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, things that, that have not changed very much don't change very quickly, right? So, okay. so you know, I, I experienced this as we created all sorts of innovations in supply chain we had companies that would come to us and they say, you know, we have been doing our supply chain the same way for 80 years and we think we should change it and we want to learn from you guys. 
said, okay, you know, let us explain you know, what we're doing and we'll share. And, and uh, you know, they come back 10 years later and they ask the same question, you know. And, and so it's really hard to change if you've been doing something the same way, you know, the, the, for a long, long time. Education, particularly K through 12, is very much that way. Now, I think there are some encouraging things that are going on, the charter school movement, the availability of data. Uh, you know, New York City public schools, Chicago, you know, uh, public schools uh, have put in data systems where they can begin to say, hey, you know, here are two classrooms in the same grade teaching the same subject. Kids go in, they come out, but the results are dramatically different. Why is that? Because of different teachers, which is why the teachers union might object to that. Yeah, but, but ultimately, you know, whether we like the data or we don't like the data, you know, we, we should probably do something about it, right? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think, I think um, uh, you know, there, there is some, some real progress. I mean, we've also worked, uh, Susan and I were at the foundation yesterday, and the team was telling us about a great project they did in South Africa where we where literally built a system to measure... Uh, educational uh, outcomes and data uh, for the entire South African school system. Ultimately, it's it's in about ten percent of the schools now, but but will roll out to the whole country. Um, and uh, you know, this is this is where there was absolutely no data or information available, and now all of a sudden you've got you know world class dashboards. I'm and glad that's in South Africa, but. Uh, Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education, when I asked him what surprised him the most recently, he said, the fact that I can know every bit of data in every other industry, but it takes me a year to know the attendance at mm -hmm. any particular school, which you should know the next day, that and, nationwide and a, attendance record. And a big part of, of the problem in measuring anything in a school is that it's measured differently from school to school. Mm -hmm. So even from district to district, school to school. And so part of EDFI is having a common way to measure mm -hmm. so that, you know, if we're comparing 100 schools and we're talking about attendance, we're all talking about the same thing or else we're going to spend all our time you know, arguing about how we're not counting it the same way and it's just a useless conversation. Are you we, we learned all this stuff in running a business, right? right. You know, as, as you went around the world and you said, Hey, you know, how are you doing in selling this, providing that service? You've got to have a dashboard. You've got to have data, information to be able to inform decisions and, you know, create better outcomes. But that's because you were running a business and so was HP and Compaq or whatever, and you had to have all that data. Do you think the fact that our school systems are generally monopolies is one of the problems? It's a big part of the problem, sure. Monopolies aren't very good at changing. And... Uh, you know, that's, that's been a big part of the problem in, in education, for sure. You, um, you mentioned you and Susan were doing things at the foundation on this. Um, we talked about it a bit, which is that the foundation does things in education and health. Dell, the company, does things in education and health. And you even have an adjunct to the foundation that's sort of a profit-making thing in education space, right? Um, how do you juggle that? I mean, how do you make them all work together in a synergistic way? Well, there are actually very specific rules about how they don't work together. Oh, okay. You know, so, so, you know, I'm not uh, from the SEC. So, I don't know so, these. Uh, so. <laughs> so we, we follow all those rules mm -hmm. very carefully. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it, 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 as it turns out, our, our foundation has been very focused on, uh, you know, 
youth outcomes, particularly youth in urban poverty. Uh, and certainly in the United States, that has had us focusing on education and uh, you know, mostly, but with some healthcare. Uh, in India, we focused on um, uh, education, uh, healthcare, and also um, some how, you know, affordable housing development, microfinance, helping to create uh, a banking system for the unbanked. Uh, and in South Africa, um, you know, uh, uh, education has, has been, a, been, a, been a huge focus. Well, let me ask you a different way, which is what lessons have you learned in business that apply to philanthropy? Well, we, we've, we've certainly learned uh, data, data matters, mm -hmm. right? And, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's okay to experiment and, and make mistakes. Um, uh, you know, uh, we've learned uh, that, you know, uh, many of the philanthropic uh, or um, uh, charitable organizations uh, have uh, great intent but their ability to execute doesn't match up necessarily. So we've, we've had a pretty active hands-on approach in terms of ensuring the success of our grants. And so it's a very uh, uh, returns-based approach to uh, in, ensuring that, that we get results. You know, we, we also have this philosophy of, of uh, we like to find areas where we can uh, make a discernible difference mm -hmm. in a defined period of time and then have it continue on without us, right? And, and, and so leave and go do something else. Uh, so, so, you know, try to, try to make some uh, distinct change and then, and then kind of move on to the next one. Well, if you're data-driven, and I know you've supported certain of the charter schools that have sprung up, are you in favor of the core standards, the common core that allows common sense of data, or do you think that uh, sort of stifles innovation? You know, the, 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 the foundation has not really uh, taken, a, taken a, a particular view on that. We, we've worked in schools that have that, worked in schools that don't have that. Um, you know, we're, 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 not, we're not really uh, uh, mm -hmm. taking a, a, big, a big position on that. When one. you talk about urban kids and kids from poor uh, communities, um, the unequal opportunity that kids in our society have seems to be widening. I mean, one example is you went to the Houston public school system. Nowadays, uh, if you're born to, you know, in an affluent family, you tend not to go to an urban inner city public school system. What can be done uh, not to shrink the income inequality or wealth inequality, but opportunity, to make opportunity for every kid in America more equal? Yeah, I think, I think it's certainly a big challenge. I think it's, it's not just a question of, of America, right? It's a question of, uh, you know, what's going on in the world economy? And what we're seeing is you know, we need enormous amount of you know, skills and capability to be able to compete. And so, you know, a kid that doesn't have uh, the 21st century skills in a developed country is going to have a very difficult time uh, keeping up. And so that places, again, enormous uh, priority on the education system. Uh, you know, the education system has, has had a difficult time, uh, you know, keeping up with that requirement. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, I think this, is, this, is a, this is a big, big challenge. Um, 
The, um, when you talk about the internet and third world, uh, there are a billion people or so on the internet, right? Uh, what happens when the next billion come on? How is that transformative? Well, if you include, you know, mobile phones, you get the numbers go up yeah. to, you know, maybe four or five billion, right? Yeah. So um, uh, there are 1.8 billion PCs in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, include, you know, users who have mobile phones, mm -hmm. you get up to, you know, five, five billion plus. Uh, but, you know, in places like Indonesia, India, you know, Nigeria, uh, you know, Pakistan, you know, huge numbers of users are, are coming on uh, in, you know, very, very, very quickly. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's all generally a very, very good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, this will be my last question, then I'll open it up. You're now the United Nations Foundation's envoy for entrepreneurship, is that right? Um, what do you see could best be done to encourage entrepreneurship, and I'll start by saying the United States and then the rest of the world. Yeah, comparatively, the United States does pretty well at this. And my job with the United Nations is, is pretty simple. They've asked me to convince world leaders that job creation uh, and entrepreneurship should be one of the sustainable development goals, sustainable development goal number eight, if any of you are voting on this, yeah. um, <laughs> in September of 2015. And if you're involved in a business or you're an entrepreneur, this seems pretty obvious, right? That, and, and That's think, how jobs are created. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you think about where do the next half a billion jobs come from? Where do the next billion jobs come from? Actually, the data is very clear that 70 to 90% of the new jobs come from entrepreneurs, small, medium-sized, growing businesses pretty much all over the world. Now, if you want to achieve any of the sustainable development goals, if you don't have jobs, it's a problem. Now, I've had an interesting observation as I've traveled around the world and you know, set up operations in Morocco and Malaysia and India and all, you know, all these places. The difference uh, between, let's say, Morocco and Tunisia. We set up 15 years ago. We were looking at, are we going to build in Morocco or Tunisia? It was pretty close. It was like 60-40 in yeah. favor of Morocco. And governments can, can play a role right, in, in helping to create these businesses. And uh, you know, uh, in, it, when, when, when you go to the real conflict zones that we have in the world today, uh, if you change the government and you still have a lot of young unemployed people, you haven't solved the problem. And so, uh, you know, we really have to be thinking about how are we going to create jobs for all these young people. The only way to do that is more entrepreneurs. Governments can, on the margin, uh, make it a little bit easier. You know, I'm not a. I'm but what not did a, Morocco I'm, do that Tunisia didn't? You know, I think uh, they their education system was a little bit better. The incentives were a little bit better. It was a little bit safer, but it wasn't like dramatically so. But of course. You know, in the, in the 15 years, what happened in Tunisia and Morocco were pretty different. And we weren't the only guys who went to Morocco. A lot of companies went to Morocco and, and you know, built, built uh, operations there. Uh, and we all know what happened in, in Tunisia. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, I, I think uh, we also, as a, um, a large, powerful country, you know, we, we, we sometimes think, okay, we're going to go over there and uh, drop some bombs. OK, 
Okay. Sometimes we do. This, yeah. the, we do that. That that uh, that's part of the part of what we do sometimes. Well, you know, we should also think about how do we go create some jobs because if you still have all these young people that are unemployed after there's a new government, after the bombs have been dropped, it's not going to end well. And and uh, so we, we need more entrepreneurs. We need more growing businesses and. Um, uh, you know, the, the UN on the margin can play a role in that, in getting uh, governments to, to recognize that, and it does direct a lot of funding, you know, in, in, in the right direction. Well, amen. Um, I will give a quick uh, advertisement for the Aspen Institute, and I know Alex knows this, but we do um, uh, a entrepreneur and investment and development in small businesses both in Morocco and in Tunisia and the Palestinian territories uh, as part of this Middle East investment initiative, and Madeleine Albright runs it. So we'll hook up with some of the people from Dell, especially in Morocco, because um, we're trying to do that from the NGO sector, but as you say, it really works best from the business sector. Let me open it up. Uh, Clay, do you have a, your hands there? I don't know. There's, there is a microphone, and Mr. Johnson is uh, first speaker, questioner. I remember reading uh, about Google, and uh, they require most of their employees, or they allow them to devote 20%, or they require them to devote 20% of their time to work on new ideas. And lo and behold, a whole lot of new ideas come out of there. In <laughs> uh, your company, or is a big challenge how to drive increased creativity, increased customer service, more, cert more, cert more customers that you can serve as well as the ones you're serving now? It, so is it more of, this, more of the customers that are being well served by you? Is it more creative service of the customers? What, is your, what are your biggest challenges in that regard? More customers or creativity or some combination or something else? Mm -hmm. It, it's both of those, but I think w one of the challenges that big companies have as they grow is they don't want to take risks. And you know, e even even if you if you, you get a bunch of people from a big company together, and you know, they just they don't even like the word risk. You know, <laughs> it it just doesn't doesn't come into the natural proclivity of of a people in, in large companies. And so you know, I see part of my job is to reinsert risk into the company, which means you have to accept some failure. Now, if you're you know, failing over and over again on the same thing, that's not risk. That's something else, right? So, <laughs> so um, we consciously uh, you know, take on projects. And, and you know, it, it, it's, you know, think about it this way. If you have 10 projects uh, you know, and seven or eight of them work out well, and a couple of them don't work out, you know, that's OK. Uh, but uh, you've got to be trying new things and experimenting. And uh, this, is, this is something that you know, as, as, as companies grow, they often forget to keep experimenting. You know, the reason you got to be a large company is because you took on risks and you accepted failure. You weren't looking for a perfect solution. Uh, and so that's. You know, something we actively talk about inside the company. We have all kinds of contests and programs and uh, even incentives to encourage that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just this acceptance of, of, uh, of 
the occasional failure. Mm -hmm. And being publicly traded, does that make you more risk averse than being privately held? I think so. I mean, certainly if you're so focused on uh, particular results, um, you know, we 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 found that that uh, you know, as a private company, we can be bolder. We can take on risks. I mean, uh, you know, the results may be more volatile, but uh, you know, that's the way things happen, right? You know, it, it, you know, there's no such thing as a straight trajectory of, of a business. Uh, here and there and yes, there. Well, one, two, three. Yeah, yeah. So I was curious. Um, sometimes there's a disconnect uh, between uh, universities and what they're able to teach, um, how advanced they are, and staying in with the needs of the skills and. That, like, for instance, big data. You know, are there enough people coming out of the universities providing that have the big data skills and going in the direction? You know, how do you keep in touch with the universities that they're teaching the right thing that's needed two years, five years from now? The the whole area of data scientists and data analytics, there are not enough people uh, that, that know how to do that, e either coming out of universities or existing. Um, what I would tell you is that, you know, uh, we we spend a lot of time with, you know, the number of great universities, including the University of Texas, uh, working with, uh, you know, the, the the faculty to kind of explain what sort of graduates do we need inside our business. Um, but uh, I would also tell you that, you know, the kind of most advanced things that, that we're doing in our company, I think this is true in a number of companies, uh, maybe they'll be taught in, you know, five years from now. Um, and, and so, you know, what students bring is they bring a foundational set of skills and then they keep learning. And the, the learning never stops. Um, Yes, sir. And then. So I have two questions. One um, from Michael Dell, and then I have one for you, Isaac. Mm -hmm. um, so, Michael, um, being that uh, we're a city here in Austin that's going to get Google Fiber, and you were talking earlier about how technology can help with um, schools and um, kids uh, that are trying to basically you know, better themselves. So things like Google Fiber, where previously you're going to go to work um, or go to a library and get internet access that's that fast, do you think Google Fiber would allow um, children, since they have access to that kind of technology, usually on their phone or by going to school, to have the kind of um, access at home and better themselves? Yeah. No, uh, look, you know, bandwidth is 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 fantastic. You know, fiber is pretty much the best you can get if you can get fiber to the home. You know that's incredible. The the speeds, the ability to access information is absolutely essential. Uh, you know, uh, we see uh, people actually moving to places where they can get fiber. You know, uh, uh, around the world. Uh, you know, the U.S. has some challenges here because it's such a vast country, and the population is pretty dispersed compared to, let's say, Japan or Korea, where you have a lot of dense population. But I think you know, uh, 
fiber to the home projects like Google Fiber are fantastic and can only help. So for Isaac, I wanted to find out. You were mentioning things about transformative technology and things that are disruptive. So I wanted to find out, with that kind of te um, technology like Dell's produced and others have produced, um, what do you think allows some people like Michael to succeed, where other people just language, uh, um, I'm sorry, languish, and they don't actually um, get their innovations to go out there and become successful? Well, I mean, if there were an easy answer, I wouldn't have had to write a 500-page book <laughs> on the subject. And I do think people do it differently, which is why I always take a biographical narrative approach. I think a Bob Noyce, you know, is one of the nicest guys in the world, is different than, say, a Steve Jobs, who nobody ever called the nicest guy in the world. Uh, so there are different ways of doing it. But I will say that one common thread that Michael mentioned or that I asked him about is they're always willing to think out of the box, think different, take risks, maybe even not that any of you should, but maybe drop out when the time comes. And uh, whether it's Einstein sort of questioning the first sentence in Newton's Principia, or you know Ben Franklin questioning the uh, theory of lightning, or anything else, they tend to be rebels, or, you know, and they tend to be willing to think out of the box. And that's very related to a willingness to take risks. I don't know if you'd agree there, but. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, I think it's looking at problems from a different perspective and um, not being afraid to challenge uh, the, the, the conventional wisdom, you know, yeah. thinking. Uh, I knew Bob Noyce when, when he really? lived in Austin. Uh, you know, You're not that old. He, uh, well, you know, I started really young. So. You're born in 65. <laughs> And so in yeah, I've always been young. It's, yeah. it's just, just how I Forever started. young, yeah. as John Baez with so, Bob um, Dylan would say. Uh, yeah, Susan and I knew, knew, knew Bob, and, and his wife, Anne, worked for us. Uh, she was uh, in the kind of formative parts of our HR organization mm -hmm. when, when they lived here. Hmm. Well, he was the nicest guy, wasn't he? He was, he was great. And, and, you know, what, what I found is, is people like... Bob Noyce and, and uh, Gordon and others Gordon Moore. would, uh, they were very generous with their time. And they would, you know, explain stuff to you. And, you know, they, 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 were, they were pretty, pretty patient guys. Yes, ma'am. Yes, hi, I'm Mr. Isaacson and I'm Mr. Dell. My name is Charmaine Sellers, and I'm going to ask a question different from technology. I'm focused on entrepreneurship. I own a construction company here in Austin, woman-owned, veteran-owned. And I'd like to get your feedback, Mr. Dell, when you mentioned about growing. I have a challenge in growing from small to medium. I want to be a large company, a national company. Did mentors help you in your growth spurts, or I mean, your, in your growth trajectory? And did they also assist you with innovative thoughts on how to grow your company? Well, you know, it, it's, it sounds pretty corny, but I think the best mentors for us have been our, our customers. Uh, and, you know, we, we just learn the most from our customers. There have been plenty of other people that have helped us, whether they were <laughs> advisors or board members, when we had a board, right, when we were a public company. You know, um, and, and uh, you know, uh, others, but, um, you know, by far and away, I'd say we learned the most from listening to our customers and going to talk to them and, 
finding out what they needed and you know, uh, being able to build our business based on uh, their needs. And you know, we help the customer succeed, we succeed. Pretty I simple. Mean, I want to not um, discriminate against the way back. Was there any person? All right, way up there. I also want to give some exercise to these mic runners. <laughs> so, Mr. Dell, you mentioned that uh, many NGOs and nonprofits have great intentions, but don't always deliver the best results. I know that um, over the past century, hundreds of billions, or tens of billions of dollars at least, have been poured into Africa with very few results. And you mentioned that you make an effort to be data-driven and result-driven in your philanthropy. So would you uh, elaborate upon the biggest issues that philanthropy has faced and also the ways in which you encourage being data and result-driven? Well, you know, we should have, we should have Susan or, or Janet Mountain, uh, who runs our foundation, come talk about that. I'll, I'll tell you, I spend a couple of hours a quarter on our foundation, and uh, you know, uh, it's it's what they do all the time. Um, you know, we are uh, incredibly uh, data driven. Um, you know, uh, we've had uh, a lot of success uh, here in the United States uh, with that approach. We've had a lot of success in India, um, in 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 Africa. Uh, you know, we, we, we've ended up finding different kinds of problems. So, for example, we have a scholarship program where we, uh, you know, help, help kids, uh, you know, get through a four-year degree program. And uh, what we found there is that many of the kids uh, didn't have the basic necessities uh, just to be able to show up for school. Um, and they had all kinds of, you know, issues at home that, impeded their ability to, to stay focused on school. Uh, and so we've done all sorts of interventions to, to help with that. We've also you know, uh, uh, you know, had to kind of keep tailoring and, and tweaking uh, the, the programs. It's not, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's not an exact, um, uh, it's certainly not the same formula each place we go. Uh, and, you know, we, we have to constantly be learning and, and tweaking. Um, you know, we're we're at the beginning of our uh, of our efforts, relatively speaking, in, in Africa, India. We're a lot further along, and in the U.S., uh, we, we we've been doing that for for the longest. All right, uh, back there, and yeah, if you would stand up and shout if you want, and I'll try to get further back too. Sorry. Lots of you are engendering a lot of questions. I'm not Hi. used to this. I guess it's University Question of for both too. of you. Uh, yeah. What specific advice do you have for young people who are interested in starting their own business? Well, Michael is the person who knows how to answer it more than I've never started my own, so <laughs> I'll let him handle it. Uh, experiment. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't look for the perfect plan. Just get started. Uh, you'll know 10 times more in six months after you've started, then you will sitting around doing nothing, just planning. So uh, just, just you know, start. Great. <laughs> yeah, right here. Uh, and then, yeah. I'm yeah. interested in the effects of technology on globalization, particularly huge changes. Yeah. Should we really call the next 25 years 3D printing and automation? What is 3D printing going to do to the question is about 3D printing and what will that will do to manufacturing. Michael? 
3D printing or you know, additive manufacturing, um, you know, what does it do to manufacturing? I don't think anybody really knows for sure. Uh, you know, today, the kinds of things that you make with 3D printers are interesting, but they're not really high precision parts. Um, and uh, you know, there's really interesting things going on in biology with printing of cells. You know, people are printing houses with, with 3D printers. They're big ones, not the prettiest houses, but okay. You know, it's, it's, it's happening. Look it up on YouTube, you can find it. Cool. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think it has a lot of promise, uh, but you know, um, where, where it goes in five, 10, 20 years, very hard to know. I mean, if, if, you, if you think about um, uh, innovation in, in our industry, or, or broadly speaking, um, the ability to combine together things into unexpected outcomes and disruptions in, in businesses, uh, that happens all the time, extremely hard to predict, right? So, if you were a hotel company, could you have predicted Uber, or, or sorry, Airbnb? You know, and if you were a taxi company or a car company, could you have predicted Uber? Or if you were, you know, a, a uh, retailer, you know, maybe you could have predicted Amazon, but could you have predicted eBay? Right. You know, so, you know, very difficult to anticipate uh, all these combinatorial inventions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know there are lots of experiments. Not all, not all of them work. Um, you know, 3D printing seems seems uh, uh, like a tremendous technology. You know what what I see at, at the end of almost all of these 3D printers, they're controlled by computers. Right? They require enormous mm -hmm. amounts of data. There's files going over the networks. They have to be stored and, and protected. Um, you know. Manufacturing uh, can, can certainly uh, be changed, but if you look at the kind of high precision, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, machine tooled uh, parts, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, maybe a while before your three D printer that does that. What about robotics? And let me go into the way back there. Uh, yeah, well, let me, if you don't mind, there's so many people have questions. So, yeah. Although you could quickly answer robotics, robotics while the microphone is being moved. Uh, you know, um, well, you know, all no. all 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 technology uh, cre both creates and destroys jobs. You know, from the wheel on forward. So you know, when the wheel came out, a lot of people lost their job. Mm. <laughs> but a lot of new jobs were created too, right? So. Any new technology will both create and destroy jobs. Uh, you know, maybe it's time to learn how to make wheels. Yeah. Right? So you know, better learn how to program robots. Um, you know, I, I think the displacement and disruption in the economy is certainly increasing because the rate of change. So the new, the rate at which you need to acquire new skills, that's a real challenge. And and so uh, you've got to keep learning and and keep applying new skills. Um, you know, uh, but I don't think it's uh, humans versus the machines. I think it's humans plus the machines. I'm going to do a quick thing about just mention something in my book because it starts with Lord Byron, who was a Luddite, 
and I mean that literally because his only speech in the House of Lords was defending the followers of Ned Ludd, who was smashing the robotic and automated looms in 1830s in England, thinking it would put people out of jobs. His daughter, Ada Lovelace, loved the way those looms work and figured out how punch cards could be used to create machines that could do general purpose anything. Uh, they were wrong then when they thought technology would put, uh, generally put people out of work. And I think they're totally wrong now. It is ne there are no data points in 2,000 years of technology actually reducing the uh, number of jobs in an economy. It just changes the nature of the jobs, as Michael said. Yes, in the way, way back. Yes, this is a question for Michael Dell. In your comments tonight, you've explained a lot of the advantages of going private to have a longer horizon in investing in new businesses, et cetera. But when you went private, you took on a new partner, substituting basically the public for at least one private equity firm. I think it's Silver Lake. Yes. So those guys may not have a 90-day time horizon, but they have investors. They want to make money on their investment in the privatized Dell. What kind of dialogue and back and forth did you have at the beginning as to the trade-offs between what you want to do, what they want to do, and how's it panned out thus far, like a year into it? Yeah, it's worked out great. Um, you, know, uh, you know, I think they see the opportunity to invest in and take on the risk and grow the business, and they have a much longer term time horizon. So they're, they're very happy uh, investors, as am I. Um, uh, they're minority investors, uh, which makes things a, a little easier. Um, but it's go going very well. Thank you. Yes, ma'am, back there. We're going to do a couple of more. We'll end in about 8.15 or so, in case you're planning your Uber apps. <laughs> I'm Uber, Lyft, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask about the incoming innovation district that's being planned along with the Dell Medical Center here at UT and to know if your foundation or your company foresees any further involvement in that innovation district or what you envision for that area. Well, I think there's a, there's a very exciting uh, you know, development going on in Austin around the biotech sector, the whole healthcare sector, the medical sector that will... Uh, you know, spin off as a result of all the great things that are going on here on, on campus. And, uh, you know, we're, we're super supportive of that. You know, we're, we're, not, a, we're not a biotech company, uh, but we do provide a lot of technology to company. You know, all, all of these biosciences are consuming enormous amounts of computing power. And if you think about, uh, you know, uh, Life Technologies, a company bought by Thermo Electron, sorry, Thermo Fisher, that uh, you know makes these huge genome sequencers. In every single one of those, there's a there's a bunch of <laughs> Dell computers, right? <laughs> and so they're a great customer. And of course, you know all of this data, uh, you know, it, it, you know has to be stored, protected, turned into real insights. And as the cost of doing that comes down, becomes available to uh, more people. Creating better healthcare outcomes, we we're we're very excited about uh, how medicine is becoming a lot more data driven and more analytic. Mm -hmm. Right in the middle of the last question you have, so make it good and 
Thanks for being here tonight, Mr. Isaacson, Mr. Dell. Uh, this question for Mr. Dell. What goal would you like to see Dell achieve most in the next five years? Great final question. Well, um, you know, look, we have um, been able to uh, serve, you know, uh, you know, tens of millions of customers around the world. Uh, we're adding customers at a, at a pretty rapid rate. And uh, certainly a big priority for us is building our solutions capability. So we started out as a product company, and products are still very important to us. But a big part of our growth has been in software and services and being able to solve larger uh, problems for customers. So in the last five years, we roughly doubled the size of that business. The next five years, we'd like to double it again. You know, there, there are roughly 10 companies on the planet that have more than 1% of the $3 trillion uh, IT market. We have about 2%, so one of the 10. Uh, you know, we'd like to have 3% or 4% in the future years. That might take us more than five years, but hey, we're young, we're strong, we're just getting started. Uh, you know, we're the world's largest startup, we're having fun. So, uh, thanks very much. You did say of Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore that they were very generous with their time and sharing their wisdom. That's one more thing you share with them. So thank you. Thank Appreciate you. It. Great. Really good. That was really, really good.